Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. In today's special episode, we sat down with Alex Gray, senior fellow at the American Foreign Policy Council and former director for Oceania and Indo-Pacific Security at the U.S. National Security Council during the Trump administration. We also sat down with Grant Newsham, retired Marine colonel and director of the One Korea Network. They touch on the importance of the Pacific Islands, what it would mean if the U.S. loses its standing as the preeminent Pacific power, and the consequences if the Chinese regime gains the upper hand. Let's dive in. Grant and Alex, thank you both for joining us. Great to have you on the show. Thanks for having us. So right now, the Pacific seems to be back in the spotlight, right? The U.S. is talking more about having a presence there. They're opening two new embassies. And the vice president also mentioned recently they're asking Congress for $60 million to help the islands there. So with all this focus happening, part of that seems to come with the Chinese regime also having a big focus on that area. So why is it so important? Maybe, Alex, you can begin. Sure. Well, thanks for having me again. And I think the strategic rationale for why the Pacific Islands matter for the United States is relatively clear, and it's been consistent going back to the early years of American history. Uh, we fought multiple wars in the Pacific for this reason, and, and it's simple. If you want to get from uh, the West Coast and from Hawaii, whether it's commercial, economic shipping, or it's, it's military, you're going to have to tr transverse the Pacific Islands. You're going to have to go across the Central Pacific and the North Pacific. You're going to have to go through the Micronesian Islands. Um, if you want to get to the Korean Peninsula, if you want to get to Taiwan, if you want to access the markets of Southeast Asia, if you want to resupply U.S. forces in Korea, um, all of that requires unimpeded air and sea access through areas that, that are within range uh, today, missile range and aircraft range of major Pacific islands. And so if we have a Chinese base or an access agreement in places like uh, one of the Micronesian islands or in a place like Vanuatu or, or Papua New Guinea or the Solomon Islands, you go down the list of, of places, there's going to be a significant danger to the ability of the United States to, to operate freely and independently uh, in the Indo-Pacific. And, and that's a, a military threat and it's an economic threat. And so, Alex, you mentioned unimpeded waters. And so, Grant, Mark Milley recently on his trip to Indonesia mentioned how there's been a significant increase in the number of aircraft and ships that the U.S. and allies have intercepted from the Chinese regime. So how does that all play into the strategic importance? Um, well, I would note that General Milley appears to have discovered gravity. Uh, actually, the, the Chinese have been doing this for a good decade plus. Uh, in the region, uh, and they've been uh, harassing and uh, inter interrupting and interfering with our, with our ships, with our aircraft, uh, for a good long while. It hasn't um, just started, uh, and it, maybe there's been an uptick, but no, this has been a problem for an awfully long while. It's nice to see this finally getting uh, some attention, and that's the the point here, and maybe the real significance of General Milley's comments. Uh, and the other things that you're seeing the US, from the U.S. side, uh, that now there is more attention being paid to the uh, Pacific Islands and to the Asia-Pacific, the Indo-Pacific in general, uh, than there has been uh, for a good long while. For about 20 years, America was distracted uh, by Afghanistan, by Iraq, 
but now it's getting the attention it deserves. And, and that's the real significance of it. And also, uh, there's a recognition that China really isn't our friend. Uh, although a lot of people haven't quite given up on the possibility that with just a little more effort, they might come to like us. Uh, but when, when General Milley is actually saying this, it uh, seems to have finally sunk in uh, with America's ruling class. Uh, and I would give some credit actually to the, the last administration uh, for really being the first one to pay attention to uh, the Pacific Islands in particular. And I've been involved in this for 30 years. And as I said, they are the first ones uh, who seem to have discovered it on the map and understood why it was important and were starting to do things. And so on that really quickly, talking about the previous administration, I know, Alex, you were actually part of that, part of that effort that helped. And so maybe why was, to you guys, why were these islands so important to the point that it was actually getting some recognition? Well, we had looked at the overall strategic picture that I laid out in your first question. That's, I think, everyone who, who studies and, and practices policy in the Indo-Pacific uh, it's common sense. You've got to get from the west coast of, of the United States and Hawaii to East Asia, and you've got these significant island chains that are blocking your path. So you've got to be cognizant of who has access and who, who has the ability to keep your access, uh, to deny your access. So that, and we'll, you know, we knew that strategic logic going in, but then you start looking at what are the Chinese doing specifically in so many of the islands of Oceania and, and throughout the Pacific. And you, you now have a situation, and we saw this when we were in office, Vanuatu, Papua New Guinea, Fiji, Solomon Islands, um, causing what I would argue, causing internal discontent in places like New Caledonia, uh, potential involvement in secessionist movements in, in the Federated States of Micronesia, in the Marshall Islands, um, activity that you know we certainly have concerns about in Palau, economic coercion against the, the Palauans. You can go, the list goes on. I mean, there's really very few places in which they were not engaged in some sort of coercive or uh, outside you know, influence activity. And particularly what we saw uh, in the, some of the places I mentioned was an attempt to get military access or dual use facilities that could be used for aircraft and, and for ships. And that really opened eyes uh, among people who hadn't necessarily focused on the region the way uh, Grant and others have. And people finally said, wow, we need to become serious about upholding our ability to, to have that unimpeded access through the Pacific Islands. And we were able to bring together a, a group of, of folks across the administration who saw the danger, led by people like Secretary Pompeo, uh, former National Security Advisor O'Brien, and ultimately President Trump himself. And we were able to, uh, to make some, I think, pretty historic headway in stopping Chinese activity in a lot of these places, or at least, uh, at least preventing it from reaching its, its ultimate destination. And I would note there's, there's an, if I could add in, there's a, also beyond the military aspect of this, uh, there's a huge political significance to the Chinese inroads into the Pacific Islands if you think about it, because these have been uh, part of the map that has been historically uh, really America's uh, since World War II. And what does it say uh, if China uh, gets in, uh, competes with us for influence, and ultimately drives us out, and you throw in the military uh, capability that they can put in place there? 
uh, it certainly looks like they're the country that's on the rise and the Americans can't get their act together. And it's not just uh, Americans who notice this, but everyone else in the region will notice it and the world will notice it. So as I say, there's always a political psychological aspect uh, to these activities uh, beyond the military uh, ones, and they're really of equal importance. And so going off that, I think, Alex, you've written in the past how the U.S. has been the preeminent Pacific power. And as you just mentioned, Grant, it seems right now the Chinese regime is now becoming that power. So just how significant is that if we lose that power? Maybe, Grant, you start. Uh, it would be the, about the same as losing a sort of a, a huge battle uh, without the, the casualties. Uh, say it would be an absolute blow to American credibility, to prestige, uh, and also our simple, the simple physical ability uh, to operate in the region. Uh, we, we would find ourselves actually defending America uh, from Hawaii. And if you play that out a little more, you're actually defending America from a lot closer to the, to the U.S. West Coast, as hard as that is to believe, uh, particularly for somebody who's sort of growing up after World War II. Uh, but we've had the upper hand where really Asia, the Pacific has been ours. Uh, we would finally uh, face an enemy, uh, face a situation where we would be on the defensive and from much closer uh, to American territory. And this would have a way of playing out in other parts of the world as well. Uh, so you really can't overstate uh, what is at stake here, in my opinion. And Alex, what would you like to see maybe this current administration do to make sure that doesn't happen? Well, there are, there are a number of things that the Biden administration could and should be doing. I mean, first of all, I, I appreciate the high-level visits. I think that's that's valuable. We tried to do that in the Trump administration, but that's not the solution that uh, I get the sense they think it is. That's a that's a nice way of of stopping the bleeding. But there there are a number of substantive things that they could do. One, there should be an American embassy in every Pacific island. Um, we we have embassies in every country in Africa throughout Central Asia, we should have an embassy in every Pacific island. Um, second, the compacts of free association that we have with Micronesia, the Marshall Islands, and Palau, these are absolutely critical uh, economically, di diplomatically, and militarily. These are special relationship that we have with those three countries that allow us um, access militarily in exchange for some economic support and some, uh, some political support. Those are uh, going. All three of those are going to need to be renewed in the next uh, next year year to two years. Um, we have seen no substantive progress made under this administration to getting that done. Unfortunately, um, there was recently a, a couple of personnel changes within the administration. I haven't seen any of that translate into activity, unfornately. And so we really need that. That is an absolute bellwether for the region. Every Pacific state is looking at whether the Americans can renew these pivotal agreements with our closest Pacific partners. If we can't get something that simple and that strategically critical done, it's going to have a chilling effect across the Pacific Islands, and it's going to play right into the Chinese hand. Um, and so I, I think those two things, embassies and getting our compacts renewed, right, right there, um, we will have made a, a strong, positive statement. There are, there are plenty of other things we could do, like bring the Peace Corps back to the region. Um, we can expand uh, the National Guard has partnerships with a number of militaries in the region. We should be expanding those as far as we possibly can. Uh, and we should not be outsourcing 
our relationship with individual islands to other countries. We, we love our Australian friends, we love our New Zealand friends, but we have to have individual bilateral relations with every country in the region. I want to get to the Solomons, but first on the kind of drills and humanitarian aid part. I think, Grant, you've mentioned in the past the importance of working with, say, Taiwan, for instance. Right now, Taiwan's having a lot of drills on their own island in preparation. So what would that look like if the U.S. were to do, say, humanitarian drills with Taiwan? Um, yeah, you know, what I would recommend, and I've, I and some others have been pushing for a long time, uh, is to have the, the Taiwan Navy and Marines, their amphibious force, get out to Guam, Saipan, and do humanitarian assistance disaster relief training with the U.S. forces. Uh, get the Japanese in on that as well. The Australians might join. Uh, and there you've, you've served a purpose of actually breaking the Taiwan military out of this 40 years of isolation. And there's still a few countries in uh, the Asia Pacific that recognize Taiwan. Uh, those would be places you could operate uh, as well. And you know, as, as Alex said, that you've got to be there. You know, and put simply, if you look at US strategy and uh, activities in the region, um, if you're not there, you're not interested. And there's been a tendency to think that if we just pitch up with a three or four star admiral or general, and he meets the president or the chief of the whatever the military they've got, uh, that, and then they have a nice tea and they go away, that, well, that somehow has solidified our presence. That's not the case. The military does something similar where they're very active in the region, uh, our military, and they go and they put on an exercise, show up somewhere, you know, have a goodwill visit, and then they're gone. And now who is there all the time? It's the local Chinese businessmen, the Chinese shopkeepers, uh, the Chinese diplomats uh, who are there in numbers just about everywhere. And they're very clever. They're they are effective. Uh, so the presence is really what matters. And, you know, I would be uh, delighted if, say, foreign service officers were lined up to get that posting in the Federated States of Micronesia rather than Vienna with its nice European co co uh, coffee culture. Uh, but the presence really, really does matter. Uh, and if we don't do that, it doesn't matter what we say, uh, that people are going to look at it and say, well, yeah, you know, you're really interested. I know you come once in a while. Uh, we've got friends as well. We mentioned Taiwan, but the Japanese could be very useful in the region. They already are, uh, but there's more they could do. Uh, the South Koreans, the Indians, be very effective, particularly on the economic front. Uh, the Australians as well. And getting these partners who have an interest in the region, who have a presence, who do things there, put it together in a systematic uh, campaign. Uh, campaign plan, and that would be a, a very useful challenge to what the Chinese have going, because uh, so much of what Chinese influence uh, depends on is a vacuum. And by a vacuum, I mean there's nothing to challenge it. There's no alternative for many of these re these countries, and they will tell you that. You know, you'll hear them sometimes say, you know, look, we're not doing this by choice, but what other options do we have? And that's where the Americans and the, the free nations need to provide them with some options. That was Alex Gray and Grant Newsham. And after a short break, we'll be continuing our discussion with them on the significance of the Solomon Islands, what it means if the Chinese regime increases its presence there, and more after a break here on China in Focus.
Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. We'll be continuing our discussion with Alex Gray and Grant Newsham. Zooming in on the Solomon Islands and other islands in the Pacific. Let's dive in. And so speaking of the presence, another big headline maker has been the Solomon Islands, right, close to Australia. And so it seems in that security pact, right, China saying, oh, we're not actually going to make a military presence, but West is very concerned about that. So if there would be a military presence there right now, as we discussed earlier, right, the first island chain made up of Taiwan, Japan, Philippines, and Malaysia kind of blocks off the Chinese regime from getting into the Pacific. So if there is a military presence on the Solomon Islands, is the Chinese regime effectively breaking that? Has it jumped over that first island chain? Maybe Alex, you can answer that. I think that if Solomon Islands uh, ends up with a dual-use facility or a permanent base or or some in-between hybrid model that gives the Chinese uh, access, it's going to be the most devastating uh, impact on the security of the first island chain going into the second island chain since World War II. Uh, it'll be the greatest threat to Australian national security since 1945. Um, I, I don't think you can exaggerate how much of a danger it will be to uh, the alliance structure that the United States has built, because, put simply, it's going to sit astride Australia's sea lines of communication. It's going to have, uh, you look, it's a very short, several-hour flight from the Northern Territory of Australia to Honiara. Um, there's a reason why thousands of Americans died in World War II fighting to keep Henderson Field uh, on Guadalcanal operative because the control of that, that, uh, that island is absolutely critical for Australia's uh, outlet to the wider world. And you know, I, I think there is, a, there is a real, not just Australian national imperative, but an American national imperative from an alliance management standpoint in keeping the Solomons from, from going down this path. And I, I really, having watched this policy unfold since 2018, 2019, um, we have not played as active and as proactive of a role in helping uh, helping be a positive force in the Solomons. Uh, you know, we, we did not have an embassy for decades. We, uh, we have only recently announced that we intend to bring an embassy back. Um, that lack of presence and that decision decades ago to rely on Australia to represent the alliance position in the Solomons, I think has, has turned out to be a very, uh, very dangerous decision and, and hopefully we'll, we'll correct it. And Grant, on kind of expanding on, say, the strategic importance, say, even with our allies and the alliances in that area, what really can be done then going forward? Well, pay attention to it. You know, if you're not, as I said, if you're not there, you're not interested. Uh, this is where you would put, uh, particularly, I would like to see small uh, U.S. military detachments throughout the Pacific region. You uh, put a young officer in charge, one of these guys who's got the magic where you put him somewhere and everybody wants to be with him, wants to be like him, they influence. Uh, put them all around the region, now, that would be starters. Uh, we get offered bases, we get offered access periodically, take advantage of this, I mean, jump on it. Uh, we don't, and that's a, a huge failing. Uh, we put on, the Marine Corps puts on excellent US Marine Corps balls every fall, if they put a fraction of the effort they put into that, into having a presence uh, in the Pacific, it would be a good thing. Uh, and that applies to most of the militaries. But so you have to be there. 
The diplomatic presence is equally important. And then America needs a political warfare strategy. And that ties together the economic, the diplomatic, the political, the military, say, into a campaign plan for the entire region. Uh, those would be some useful things to do. Um, and I would note that it's when considering the Chinese threat, it's good to look play this out a few years, say five, 10 years. And for now, it's just the Solomon Islands. Um, but say, play it out. And the Chinese presence, the, the influence effort throughout the region uh, is ongoing everywhere. And you're going to find other places uh, where they, they establish a, a military presence. Kiribati, uh, just a thousand miles or two below Hawaii is the latest one that's in play. Uh, New Guinea is talked about a lot, Vanuatu, uh, Fiji's gotten mentioned, and, and the previous administration actually preempted uh, Chinese efforts to get a, a military foothold into Fiji, into New Guinea, and they did that very well, but you've really got to pay attention to that. But as I say, play this out a few years, and there's going to be much more of a Chinese uh, presence uh, if we're not there to uh, to counter it. And one thing you do notice in the region is that people want the Americans around, uh, and they're puzzled that we, we don't pay them more attention. It, um, and keep in mind that a lot of these nations have uh, the leader of them uh, has a blank check from the Chinese on his desk in a lot of cases. Uh, but they want the Americans to, to actually show up uh, and actually do things. But it is that permanent presence. And don't forget the economic end of this. Uh, that this is, is as important as the military, uh, that we need to get, uh, somehow get American, but also Japanese, Korean, Taiwanese, Indian, uh, Australian businesses into the region and do what's necessary to draw them, them in. It requires some specialized know-how uh, that some you might find in parts of Department of Commerce uh, to help with that. But once again, it needs a, a sort of a consistent effort and there's constant infrastructure demands in these regions where we could usefully uh, sort of apply ourselves. And this is something that really does need to be addressed. And Alex, from the individual American's point of view who might think, oh, say the Solomon Islands really far away, all these tiny little islands, why should I care? Why should the average American care about what happens here? Well, I think if we've learned anything from the post-COVID supply chain uh, disruptions, it's just how critical U.S. economic and commercial traffic from Asia to the West Coast and, and from the West Coast distributed throughout the United States really is. Um, we continue to be reliant in so many ways on trade and commerce coming from not just China, but from Southeast Asia and from India. And so much of that is going to traverse through the Pacific and end up in West Coast ports. And as long as that is our economic model, as long as we continue to, to have an economy that requires uh, cheap imports to, to fuel our, our, consumer, uh, our consumer spending habits, that's going to require a Navy and a, a projection forces that can traverse the Pacific, keep the sea lanes open, and allow, uh, allow the engine of our economy to, to keep churning. And whoever controls access to those islands, whether it's the Solomons in the south, whether it's Micronesia and the Marshalls and Palau in the north, whether it's Kiribati near Hawaii, whoever has the ability 
to, to deny access or keep open access uh, is going to play a, a major role in determining the commercial future of the wider Pacific. And that's what the Chinese uh, partially want. They want to be a, a global power. Anyone who tells you that their ambitions are regional and are confined to just their near seas, I think, is, is not keeping up with the reality of, of where we are. Uh, the Chinese are building a fleet and are building uh, a global a global presence uh, with bases and, and access agreements that span the globe from Greece to the Middle East and everywhere in between, uh, the, potentially on the Atlantic now. And so we need to we need to understand this is a, a serious challenge to the American commercial and military uh, presence that we've taken for granted at least since the end of the Cold War, but but really since 1945. Well, Alex and Grant, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. That was Alex Gray, senior fellow at the American Foreign Policy Council and former director for Oceania and Indo-Pacific Security at the U.S. National Security Council during the Trump administration, and Grant Newsham, retired Marine colonel and director of the One Korea Network. Thanks for watching China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer, and see you soon.